It is a Monday edition of Locked on NBA. David Locke in for Josh Lloyd. The biggest stories, the local experts. What's the biggest story in the NBA going to be for the final 25-plus games? The race in the Eastern Conference. So we'll stop in Toronto, Boston, and Milwaukee from Locked on Celtics, Locked on Bucks, and Locked on Raptors. You are Locked on the NBA, part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Looking at the Eastern Conference arms race, the interesting one is Boston, who did not make a move, but had some signs of things looking better toward right before the break, and maybe a team that actually needed the break as well. John Corrales of Locked On Celtics joins us now, as well as of MassLive.com. And John, there were some Gordon Hayward sightings there late before the All-Star break. Is there a feeling he's turned a corner? Uh, I definitely think there's there's some semblance of that. Uh, it's so hard to say with the way his recovery's been going. Every time you think he might have turned a corner, uh, it seems like he takes a, a step back. But uh, I think this time around, it's, it's, it's definitely more for real. Uh, the one thing that I keep harping on is that second surgery that he had that, that cost him his entire summer, which means it cost him four months of consequence-free basketball uh, five on five, up and down, where he could shoot to his heart's content and not worry about anything. Uh, he spent the past four, now four and a half months, trying to do the same thing while playing in NBA games for a team that was a, a one of the, the leading contenders, and I think it took a toll on him mentally. So I think he's finally starting to feel like himself again a little bit. That, that athleticism is coming back. He's starting to drive with the purpose of scoring, which is helping him pass better. Uh, so I, I think we're starting to see what Gordon Hayward had hoped to be coming into the season, and it just took all this time to get there. This team's won 12 of its last 15, yet it feels like a tumultuous stretch. So mm. is it a team that has turned the corner in some way and is ready to make that final surge, or is it still got all sorts of little friction points inside of it? I don't know about the friction part of it. I mean, there, there's still some of that going on, especially now that Anthony Davis has publicly said that Boston is on his list, quote unquote. So I don't know how that's going to impact the young guys like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, who might be included in a deal like that or would have to be included in a deal like that. But for, for the Celtics, the question has always been about effort, why they are so off-putting sometimes. The style of play, they just, they just stop playing. Uh, the collapses against the, the Lakers and the Clippers, just, they just stopped playing. It's like they forgot how to play basketball. What ends up happening is they, they get these big leads and they feel like, okay, now, now some of us, we can go get our own stats. And that ends up costing them, gives another team confidence. And you know what happens when any NBA team, any NBA player gets confident. So for them, the corner to turn is can they play 100% consistently over this last stretch, you know, put together 20-some-odd games of 48-minute consistent effort. Uh, if they can start doing that, then yeah. But it, it's all up to them, and it's all up to it, the, the leaders on that team, Kyrie, Al Horford, to kind of set that example and go out there and, and just do it for 48 minutes. You made a great point. I think it might have been last week on Locked on NBA with Josh about, you know, the hope at this point is get to the playoffs and then all the personal agendas set, get set aside. Is there any yeah. chance that you get out of All-Star break and all the personal agendas get set aside? Uh, I still think that there's going to be this stretch run where, where some guys still do that. Uh, it's, it's possible, though. It's much more likely 
that they're going to have to make this run. And right now they, they are a game out of the third seed. So they can make a run. They can try it. Uh, I, I still am afraid that there's going to be some stretches where that personal agenda comes around and still bites them. One, especially if they make the run and get to the third seed and then feel comfortable. The Celtics have been terrible this year when they felt comfortable. It's the worst thing that they could be is feeling comfortable with anything. Once they do, it all goes away. It saps their magic. It saps their mojo. So whatever needs to happen to keep them uncomfortable from now on, and that might be something on Brad Stevens to do. If they can somehow feel like they're constantly reaching for something, then, then, then they'll get to where they need to be. In this Eastern Conference arms race or whatever you want to call it, I mean, this is going to be the number one story of the NBA for the final 25-26 games. The Celtics are sitting at six and a half games back. Indiana's just a game in front of them. Philadelphia's tied with Boston. Toronto is probably too far to catch. Milwaukee's definitely at six and a half games in a, unless, you know, with the way they're playing in a span of 25 games, the really crazy things would have to happen. What do you think is realistic for Boston to get that third seed and surpass Philadelphia? Are you at all concerned that Philadelphia with their trades are actually a better team than Boston right now? No, I don't think so. I I think they're, they're right there with them. Um, I I mean, I just saw them beat the, I just saw the Celtics beat Philly. So if, and and obviously the Celtics now have the tiebreaker with Philly. So they, I think they're going to be okay. Uh, Philly could, I guess make a run, and, and I think there's that matchup uh, with, with Boston, the the Al Horford based advantage that they have that that kind of maybe colors my my perspective here. But as far as the rest of the regular season and the standings, I think the I think the Celtics can get to that third seed. That's probably where they're they're going to end up. I wouldn't I wouldn't expect them to make a huge run, and I wouldn't expect Toronto to fall apart. Uh, so I would expect a third seed, and I think that tiebreaker with Philly. It's a big advantage. I would doubt that you um, would ever do something of this sort, but is there a difference between playing Toronto and Milwaukee in the second round in the minds of a Celtic fan? It, as far as what, as far as having what, one of those good teams in the way in the second yeah, round? Yeah, I mean, is there any reason you'd slip to fourth on purpose just to, to make no. sure you didn't see Toronto or something of that sort? No, I don't think so. The East is so stacked; like it doesn't matter. You you avoid one to get the other. I don't think there's there's any sort of issue. I think the Celtics are are going to just kind of go with what's in front of them. They're going to try and get that third seed. It's more important to get get as many of those home games as possible. Uh, you never know what's going to happen with that with that first round matchup. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Yeah, we we kind of know what's going to happen. Um, but uh, I don't I don't think they're going to. And that's not how they're wired. That's not how Brad Stevens is wired. To, to try something like that. The, and the thing about the Celtics is their advantage over Toronto is the same advantage that they have over Milwaukee that they have over Philly. Like Al Horford's the wild card. And as long as Al Horford is there and healthy, then they feel good going up against all three of those teams because Horford is the guy that it's tough to guard. He, he, puts a lot of pressure on your defense because you have to guard a five out at the three-point line who can pick you apart pass-wise. And he is the answer for, uh, like, uh, uh, Marcus Saul. He's the answer for Joel Embiid. And and even those moves that they've made, uh, he's the answer for Brooke Lopez. And a lot of what Milwaukee does defensively is based around Brooke Lopez kind of patrolling the middle. If, 
if a lot of those things come together in the Celtics path, like they still have that, that one advantage, the Al Horford advantage. So I, I feel like they're just going to go do what they do and let the chips fall where they may. Final thing, you've mentioned Horford and Hayward. From a local expert's point of view, John, is there something in this final 25 games you're watching more closely than anything else that will dictate in your mind how this team is playoff time? I think the Hayward thing is the biggest thing. If, if every other team made a move, if the Celtics move is trading the Hayward from the beginning of the season for Gordon Hayward, who is uh, close to approaching or at least good, like his last five games, uh, he's been averaging something like 15 points and uh, like five assists, five rebounds, something along those lines. If they can get 15 to 17 points from him a night, that's a huge upgrade over the Gordon Hayward that they had at the beginning of the season. And that now snaps into place. Jalen Brown and, and whomever else is on the bench isn't looking at Gordon Hayward saying, why is he getting those minutes? You just accept now Hayward's kind of back, maybe not fully back, but he's back enough where I can't complain. I got to do my job and it kind of settles a lot of things down. So Hayward's progression and his consistency is the biggest factor here. And as this gets forward, keeps moving forward, if Hayward just keeps making the in- incremental progress, they could go into the playoffs with a key acquisition that they didn't have to uh, give up any players for. It's a great point. John, thanks for the time. The interesting one I will note, in the last 15 games when the Celtics are 12-3, and three, Hayward's only taking nine shots a game. So if he suddenly gets hot, where do those come from? It's the same story Boston's been dealing with all season long. But as you said, John, if it's undeniable, then someone's just going to have to suck it up. Great point. He's also getting to the line, too. Scoring from the line. Yes. John, great work. Keep it up on Locked on Celtics. Also joined by Sam Packard and Jay King of The Athletic. It's a fabulous show. It's Locked on Celtics. Make sure you check it out. It's the local experts on the biggest stories in the Locked on Podcast Network. As we assess the Eastern Conference race to the top in what will be the number one story in the NBA over the next 25 games. Let's stop in Toronto. Sean Woodley is the host of Locked On Raptors. And Sean, are the Bucks the favorite? Are the Raptors the favorite to have the number one seed? I think you have to say the Bucks right now because they are just so sure of themselves and they know exactly what they are. They're not trying to integrate anything like Nikola Mirotic should fit in really well with what they're doing. And it it seems like it's pretty seamless there. Toronto, like, I still think they're really good and would maybe argue they have the highest upside of any of the teams in the East because of their top-end talent mixed with their depth. Um, But they have some things to work out. They have to figure out the starting lineup situation. Is it going to be Serge Ibaka going forward with Marc Gasol coming off the bench, or is it going to be Gasol sliding in to that starting job after the All-Star break, after he's had some time to watch some tape and kind of get caught up with where the Raptors are at? in terms of their schemes and things like that. Um, that's going to be an interesting question. I think it should all fit together pretty well, and I think Gasol kind of ties a lot of the loose ends the team had uh, kind of going before the deadline together. Um, but, yeah, I would say the Bucks right now, I mean, they've been better than the Raptors all season long. Their statistical sort of case as being the best team in the league is so obvious right now. 
you kind of had to give it to them. Do I trust them to be this dominant and this prolific in the playoffs? No, because I think most teams kind of fall off in some way in the postseason when postseason defenses kind of kick in. Um, and the East is so weird that like I think any of the four teams could kind of beat one of the others. It's like a four game, four way game of rock paper scissors where some got some teams kind of match up better against others. But I would say the Raptors right now are probably the second best team. Um, but even then, it's so hard to say because we don't know what it's all going to look like a couple weeks from now. The Raptors statistically are less good offensively and less good defensively than they were a year ago. Why does everybody mm-hmm. think they're better? Yeah, I I think the – it's so bizarre. I thought the defense was going to be a lot better than it has been, to be honest. And I think – um, a lot of this season feels a lot. It kind of feels like the Cavs last year a little bit, where never it never really kind of got going. But you always knew there was a ceiling there, and the Raptors have had some parts of the season, some games, some you know quarters where they really sort of hone in and are just horrifying defensively. Their switchiness, they just the number of really dogged on-ball defenders they have. Like I think going into the season, I pegged them to be a top three defense, and they haven't been that so far. But they've had sequences where they've looked like the best defense in the league. And it's won them games against some very good teams. There have been stretches where, you know, Kawhi Leonard forces Ben Simmons into three turnovers in two minutes, or he rips the ball out of someone's hands late in the game to go back the other way for a Raptors bucket. Um, They have this sort of gear they can hit defensively that makes me think that they can be better than that. Offensively, it's just kind of been a weird fit with Kawhi, and it still worked. They've been a pretty good offense overall and have had some really prolific games. It's just I think they've kind of been working on different tracks, right? Like Kawhi kind of does his own thing a little bit. He'll ISO kind of go solo. You know, Pascal Siakam, as great as he's been, kind of also does his own little forays and doesn't really, you know, all he's not all that much part of what the Raptors are doing uh, in terms of their regular sort of free-flowing offense. And then you have, like, the Kyle Lowry, Serge Ibaka, Danny Green triangle. That works really well, but, like, it's not really connected to the rest of the offense. And that's why I think Marc Gasol kind of is a perfect fit for all this because what better way to sort of bring together all those different parts of the offense and sort of get some connectivity going, then a big man who sets incredible screens and throws great passes. Like, he feels like a perfect guy to throw into that starting five in place of a block and sort of bring it all together. All right, let's get to that. Marcus O will work. Why? Marcus O won't work. Why? Marcus O will work because he's incredibly smart and he, you know, he brings a lot of what Jonas Valanciunas did but also does it better. His shooting is really, really useful. You know, Valanciunas, as much as he was like, you know, lauded as a guy who sort of worked on his three-point shooting, it was always more of a gimmicky shot where no team ever respected him whatsoever. You know, Gasol can work against any of the teams the Raptors are going to come across in the playoffs. He can play against Al Horford. He's really good against Joel Embiid and has done a really good job in his career defending him in the post. And, you know, you can, you can drag Embiid away from the basket with Gasol as well. And the same goes for Brooke Lopez, too. Like, he's a really good matchup, I think, for all those those series in particular. And I think they made that deal with that in mind, thinking like, yes, Valanciunas is great, but he can't be on the floor against Boston. He probably can't be on the floor against Milwaukee either. Gasol can play in all three of those matchups. So I think just the fit and sort of how it works for the context within this, within this conference race is happening. Like, I think that's why it'll work. It won't work if it's a little bit too hard for Nick Nurse to manage the rotation and you can't find the right mix of minutes distribution and starting role versus coming off the bench between Gasol, Abaka, and Pascal Siakam because all three of those guys are deserving of minutes. I mean, Gasol, his reputation speaks for itself. 
Siakam is maybe the most improved player in the league this year, and you can't take him off the floor because he's always doing crazy things. I mean, he scored 44 points like, the game before the All-Star break. Like, you can't take him off the floor. And then Ibaka has been fantastic, too, uh, although I think a lot of his success has very much been tied to Kyle Lowry. Uh, and then that's an, an interesting thing you got to manage, too. If you put Col- Serge Ibaka on the bench away from Kyle, is it going to work? Is it going to be, you know, is, is Ibaka going to have the same success and effectiveness that he's had in the starting five? So that could sink them. Their bench could not be very good, and, you know, that could be a problem. But I do think there's a way in which this works, in which they have like an eight- or nine-man rotation, and they never have to have more than two of the you – know, they can always have at least two of Gasol – Abaka or Gasol, Leonard, Siakam, Lowry on the floor at all times. Like they can sort of do the Sixers thing where they mix and match their lineups to have you know just good players on at all times, and that can mitigate the problems with the bench. So uh, I think it's more likely that it works and that it doesn't, just because I think the the, the matchup stuff is uh, is really sort of leaning towards it, it making a lot of sense for the Raptors with Gasol. Any concern that Indiana, Boston, or Philadelphia can catch you? Uh, I don't think so. It's a lot of games to make up in the loss column with 25 or so left. And the Raptors have a, uh, a really, really easy schedule down the stretch. They play a lot of Orlando and, you know, the, the Knicks and the, and the Hornets. Like, they play some crappy teams down the stretch here. They have, like, maybe four games against playoff teams left, I think. It's, it's that, it's that, or teams above 500. I guess you could count the Hornets as a playoff team, but they're not very good. Um, but, yeah, they, they just I think the schedule is lining up that they're going to be okay to, to maintain that five-game edge. And, you know, whatever happens with the one seed, it's nice that I think the Raptors don't really care. Um, you know, we obviously saw last season that the one seed wasn't all it was cut out to be because, you know, LeBron James existed. And maybe it is more important this year because maybe it's just going to be the one seed, the home, the home court advantage that, that is the difference for the East right now. But I do think the Raptors kind of are pretty confident in themselves. They're extremely experienced, which is a thing that you wouldn't have said a year ago. But now you look at it and they have – you know, Kawhi, who's been to two finals and won a finals MVP. You have Danny Green, who's been to two finals. You have Serge Ibaka, who's been to a final in a whole bunch of the biggest wars in Western Conference history in the last decade. You have uh, now Marcus Gasol has been in a lot of those games, too, and Kyle Lowry's been around a long time. So this team, I think, kind of knows what it takes when it gets to the time that, that it really needs to be sort of, you know, amped up. And I do think that's why I'm not so concerned about any sort of inconsistencies in the regular season, because I just believe in sort of the pedigree of this team in a way that I haven't with a Raptors team, you know, pretty much ever. You only have one game left on the road against a good team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's crazy how easy it is. I mean, they had a really tough start to the year. They were on the road quite a bit. They had both their big West road trips in the first month and a half or so. Um, and they played the most games in the league, I believe, uh, going into the All-Star game, too. So it's pretty spread out. They're going to actually have practice time, which is going to be key for this team as well. I think they've had, like, maybe three practice days in the last, like, three months, considering how, you know, you know clustered it's all been. So it's going to be, I think, really useful for them to get, you know, Gasol and Jeremy Lin acclimated because uh, they have some time in here to sort of get some practice and get some run to get them to know each other instead of just having to test stuff and workshop it on the floor in-game all the time. So from a local standpoint, as a local expert, what is the item you are watching most closely in the final 25 or so games that will dictate to you whether the Raptors are ready for the playoffs? Yeah, I think it might be Nick Nurse. Um, you know, th- this is this was the risk coming into this season where there's a lot of expectation. There's a whole lot riding on it with Kawhi Leonard's future and everything. Uh, and it was a big, bold move to go from Dwayne Casey into Nick Nurse. And, you know, I think Nurse has been you know pretty good so far this year. Always had some w- issues where... 
you know, the late game offense has not been very creative. He's had some sort of a tendency to maybe stick with lineups that don't work a little bit too long. And, you know, he's going to have to start to find some lineups that really work here and get some real data on them to sort of see if they're going to be useful in the playoffs and viable when it really, when it really starts to matter. Uh, so how Nick Nurse manages this end of the season, whether he's going to continue being experimental and just trying whatever he thinks can, you know, maybe stick against the wall, or if he's going to start to actually implement the data he's developed over the first two-thirds of the season to sort of put it into practice and get the Raptors honed up with their best lineups, getting a lot of run together to build that chemistry, uh, that's going to be big because the chemistry is going to be key. I mean, it was a risky move, uh, especially with the Bucks in there and, and even the Celtics who kind of have a bit more built-in chemistry than this Raptors team does. You know, to go and make that move for Gasol and sort of throw things back into flux, a very risky move, but I, I guess the argument could be made that they were kind of starting from ground zero chemistry-wise anyway because it was kind of just disjointed before the deal. Um, so maybe the, it doesn't really matter. You're not changing things too much. But I think how Nick Nurse manages his end of the season to sort of build the confidence in both uh, the, the team and the fan base that he's going to be able to sort of be a playoff-ready coach, that's going to be the thing I'm watching for the last 23 or so games here. Great. Sean, keep up the great work. The local experts on the biggest story, Sean Woodley with Lockdown Raptors. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. And now for a final stop, let's check in on Locked on Bucks. Eric Name, Frank Madden hosts the show. Here are the two of them talking about the Eastern Conference arms race. This is Eric Name and Frank Madden from Locked on Bucks. And uh, Frank, we're going we're gonna to talk about something that you adore, uh, the phrase Eastern Conference arms race. <laughs> Uh, something that you've talked about loving on our podcast here uh, over the last couple of days, a phrase that you don't feel in any way has uh, totally lost its relevance, but that's okay. We're going to use it. Uh, Eastern Conference arms race, the Milwaukee Bucks. And I guess what's kind of interesting about what has shaped up in the last couple of weeks is that, you know, this Bucks team is, is the best team in the league. Uh, according to their record, they have the best record in the league. They've played like that for much of the season. And, you know, going into the All-Star, or excuse me, going into the trade deadline, I don't think either of us kind of thought that the Bucks had the assets necessary to pull off a move and, you know, try to compete as those other Eastern teams were, were going to be able to make trades. And the Bucks were able to do that with uh, Nikola Mirotic. And, you know, I think as far as moves go at the trade deadline, this is one of them that, to me, ends up making probably the most sense out of all of them. The fit is, to me, obvious. And, you know, I, I think in the end, you have a move from the Bucks that really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly make the case that Miritich is, is not as good of an overall player. Certainly hasn't, you know, collected the accolades that... Um, you know, the likes of, of Marcus all for sure has collected and, and even Tobias Harris, right. Who was a, a borderline all-star this year. Um, you know, this is maybe not as, as showy a move as, as those acquisitions by Toronto and, and Philadelphia respectively. But, uh, you know, I think that the important thing is, you know, he's a guy that, that really addresses the kind of biggest weakness they had, which, you know, especially, uh, maybe not the last couple of games, but before, previous to that, you know, Ursan Eliasova had really been struggling mightily. Um, you know, I think we have major questions just, you know, given his style. Um, I don't know if you can, you know, take enough charges uh, the way Ursan does in the playoffs to justify um, <laughs> him matching up against certainly some of the, the top teams in the East. Um, so the idea of kind of, you know, making your, your, 
lineup a little more playoff worthy uh, and, you know, we're potentially replacing our son Isova or, you know, if DJ Wilson has some struggles defensively, I think you worry a lot less about DJ, but um, being able to sub in basically a, you know, much, much, much better version of Ursanui Sofa uh, in Nikola Miritich yep. is, is certainly uh, a major positive. Obviously, they're different types of players. Um, but yeah, I mean, it really kind of, kind of tightens up that front court rotation, gives them the ability to play different types of uh, lineups, whether they want to play with Giannis and, and Miritich at the big spots together, you know, possibly going with some jumbo lineups. You know, we saw Miritich do that a little bit where he played sort of effectively as like a 3-4 hybrid Um in uh, in New Orleans, we've seen Giannis play with Ursan and Brooke Lopez at times this season, and they've actually been pretty good with that group, even though I don't know if I love that uh, in the grand scheme of things. But um, but yeah, it gives them more versatility, and, and obviously just stylistically, Miritich, a guy who will gun from anywhere on the court, and that obviously fits the Bucks MO, and I think that's where you know you could make a case that, again, maybe he's not as good in some sort of you know vacuum as, as those other guys you mentioned going to Toronto and Philly, but um, in terms of like you know, you didn't have to give up any rotation pieces or even a first round pick to get him. And, you know, he's basically shoring up kind of the one obvious weakness you have. He's not really creating much controversy, right? Like they don't have to figure out, okay, now we got to play differently because of him. Um, I think that, you know, hopefully will will mean that there will be very little acclimation process for getting him integrated in the team. And, and obviously, you know, uh, again, you've got plenty of competition in the East for for that top spot for, you know, trying to come out of the East and, and face presumably the Warriors in the finals. But um, this is certainly a move that, you know, again, it's it's a move that with Miritich is an expiring contract. Um, maybe he's not, you know, likely to sign long term, but certainly this year um, with where the Bucks are, it certainly makes a lot of sense that, you know, address that weakness and give yourself every chance to come out of the East and, um, you know, get, take, take your hacks in the playoffs. So uh, I guess if this is meant for national audiences rather than, you know, a local audience, um, I think something we should try to address here is just the the general idea that this Bucks team isn't going to be good enough when the playoffs come around because they don't have the star power of those other teams. And, you know, I think repeatedly throughout this season, uh, in some ways people look at us like we're crazy when we say, you know, this is the best team in the East. Like uh, y- you look at the projections, the numbers show it. Um, you look at, everything that's happened to this point, the net rating, the point differential, all of those things show it. And, you know, I think from the outside, it's just like, oh, our Bucks fans are, you know, just too excited about having a good team. And, you know, they're not really looking at this team in comparison to these other teams. So um, I guess the what I'm going to pose to you, Frank, is defend Bucks fans and say why they're not crazy to think that this Bucks team is actually the best team in the Eastern Conference when, you know, I think from the outside, what people wanted to do is say the Celtics just have too much talent. The Sixers just have too much talent. The Raptors, uh, do the Raptors have too much talent now? I'm not sure what people say, but um, I'm trying to, from the outside, try to pull this together for you to maybe be a little bit combative and let people know why the Bucks are actually this good. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think especially with, um, with those other three teams in particular, Boston, I mean, there's just sort of, you know, kind of the confirmation bias aspect of this, right. I mean, uh, and, and necessarily I expected Boston to be better than they've been as well. I think, you know, no one thought they'd be, you know, fourth or fifth in the East. Right. Um, and so I think with, with Boston and Philly in particular, you know, there's been that, that effect where you're always sort of, 
looking for reasons to validate why so many people thought they would be better than, than they have been um, versus the Bucks. You know, people are sort of doing the opposite, right? I think a lot of people thought the Bucks could be certainly a top four team. I think certainly some folks even said they could be, you know, challenge Philly for, for three, um, but not a lot of buzz about them being, you know, the best team in basketball. Um, and, and I can understand that part. And so there's only, it's only natural to sort of try to poke holes in it and say, well, come on, it can't be real, right? It can't just be Budenholzer and, you know, Brooke Lopez, right? Um, by the way, people always mention Brooke and Ursan as like the summer signings. Let's be, it's Brooke. Brooke is the one real big difference in terms of the rotation um, who who has been a, a huge uh, factor. Uh, George Hill obviously coming away along midseason has been helpful too, but they were great even before George Hill got there as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, they're they're just sort of doing everything they can. And, you know, I think we, we were talking about the other day. I mean, you want to enjoy certainly a, a great season. Giannis being um, right there, you know, at the forefront of the MVP discussion. He's kind of done everything that you could ask for to put himself there and to put the Bucks in the position that they've been in. Um, and so really it's, you know, you, as a Bucks fans, I think they you want to appreciate kind of what you're seeing, but then there's also this feeling of, Hey, let's just get to the playoffs and, and, and get this over with because um, you know, I think ultimately that's what a big part of the skepticism over the Bucks is, you know, this, this group has not won a playoff series. And um, obviously you can say, well, this team was not the team we saw a year ago. Uh, but you know, now un- unlike, you know, certainly some of the other teams that they're competing against that, that have at least gone to the second round, you know, they just have to prove it. And so, um, you know, there's, there's no juggernaut that has won championships that has gone to the finals X times in a row now in the East. The LeBron and the Cavs are done. Um, so it's it's wide open in that sense. Uh, but it does feel like people kind of view the Bucks with that extra layer of skepticism. And, you know, again, the numbers speak for themselves. Um, it, it's kind of hard to doubt them just numerically, statistically. Um, but again, and you just, I think, looking from their perspective, they just need to keep it up. And then if they are this team in the playoffs, um, I think they're going to continue to prove people wrong. All right. I think that should hopefully sum up why the Bucks are a part of this Eastern Conference arms race and why they factor into it so heavily. And hopefully, you know, that, that gives people some perspective on just what this team is about. And, you know, I, I think the understanding of the questions that surround this team and, you know, maybe why they can answer some of those questions. So for Frank Madden, I'm Eric Dame. This has been our little bit from Lockdown Bucks. That wraps up the Monday edition of Locked on NBA, the local experts on the biggest stories. Remember, when you get in your car, you can tell your car to play podcast Locked on NBA. And now try it with your favorite team. Just tell your smart device, whatever the keyword is, and say play podcast Locked on, I don't know. I don't know your favorite team. Have a great day.